Earlier this month, Portland State University philosophy professor Peter Bogosian resigned from his position. He made his resignation letter public on journalist Barry Weiss's Substack blog. In his letter, titled My University Sacrificed Ideas for Ideology, So Today I Quit, Bogosian claims that after becoming known as a critic of the dominant ways of thinking about race, gender, and sexuality, his university retaliated against him. I'm Mike Mazza, Junior Fellow and Instructor here at ARI. Joining me today to discuss the Bogosian story are ARI Senior Fellow Ankar Gatte, and for the first time on New Ideal Live, Nikos Sotirakopoulos, author of the recent book, Identity Politics and Tribalism, The New Culture Wars, Senior Lecturer in Social Sciences at York St. John University and Director of ARI Europe. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Nikos. Thanks for joining me. Hello. So, hi. So Bogosian became known to the broader public in 2017, 2018, um, when he, with his collaborators, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, published a series of hoax articles in prominent journals focused on issues of race, gender, sexuality. Um, Bogosian's claim in his uh, resignation letter is that it's really these hoax articles that started the backlash against him at Portland State. He was initially subject to some sort of research misconduct investigations uh, on the grounds that the hoax journal editors were human subjects in an unsanctioned experiment. Um, he alleges also that uh, a lot of bizarre behavior on the part of students, um, he would be spit on as he walked to class. Um, a student accused him of physically abusing his family and the university took this seriously, investigated him, interviewed people, asking them whether or not they knew about Bogosian abusing his family. Students smeared feces on his office door. The university declined to investigate that. They investigated the unfounded accusations against him, but not, not this. Um, and colleagues began asking or advising students not to take his classes. So <clears throat> we're talking about this um, Bogosian episode in part because we're interested in um, what the clim climate on contemporary uh, campuses are and how they got this way. So Nikos, I want to start with you since of the three of us, you're the one still actually on uh, a college campus. Um, what do you make of this uh, behavior that Bogosian was subjected to? Um, do you think that he, he seems to think that this kind of behavior is new or has gotten worse in recent years. Do you have any uh, thoughts? So look, the universities have for a long time been mostly dominating that ideas that are, let's say, leaning towards the left. But what has changed, and Bogosian gives mainly two reasons for his uh, alienation, let's say, for his disillusionment. The one is, as you said, this behavior, the attacks, the, the personal attacks on him. But the second reason he's giving is he says, I cannot teach anymore in the way I enjoy teaching, which is, let's say, teaching students to pursue the truth. And where he's, what he's, where he's going with that is that the universities more and more are in a way institutionalizing that their mission is not necessarily the truth, but it's something else. It is social justice, or it is for the research to have an impact, which means that their research or their teaching is a tool, is a tool for something else and not necessarily for the pursuit of, uh, for the pursuit of knowledge. So from all the things that Bogosian said, this is the one that I, 
in a way, I found more familiar with my experience in academia that more and more we are encouraged, particularly in the UK, where your funding is based on funding on public funding bodies, that your work in a way, your research and your teaching has to benefit, let's say, disadvantaged groups and has to promote social justice. Now, you could say that there's nothing uh, that you could say, yeah, well, I, if I'm teaching the truth, this promotes justice indeed. But as Bogosian says, the way we understand social justice is under a very particular ideological prism, and this makes the atmosphere ideologically, let's say, suffocating. So this idea that Bogosian seems to have that there is an ideological monoculture on campus, um, and that this is part of what's new. Now, that doesn't ring exactly right to me. Um, Ankar, do you have any insight into this? There's been monocultures on college campuses before. Everybody's a Marxist, everybody's a radical leftist. What's, yeah. what's changed since say this, the, the old from the old left to the new left and the new left to the newest left, what's, what's different now? So you asked, um, or you said that Nikos is, he's still on college campus. So I was on college campuses in the 80s and 90s doing my undergraduate and then graduate degrees. I would describe both, so I, I was in Canada, I would describe both places I was at, University of Toronto, University of Calgary, as uh, close to a monoculture when we're talking particularly about social and political values. So not that in, in when we're talking, uh, I did economics and philosophy, that every economist on the, the faculty, every philosopher agreed about everything, but there was widespread agreement on political and social issues and a real ostracizing of anyone who didn't toe the line. Um, I remember I was on campus, for instance, in the first Gulf War and anyone who wasn't outraged by the war um, was ostracized. And I could see that even with faculty that if, if they just raised uh, philosophy faculty, just raised some question like you sure that the, it, the, the war is completely wrong and so on, they were attacked. Um, and and we we'll talk about deplatforming and things like that. This happened in the 80s and the 90s, people talking about environmentalism and challenging the, it's now kind of unchallengeable. And we don't even think of it as really anybody would challenge it, but it was challenged in some in the 80s and 90s that we need more industry, not less, for instance. And people were, were booed off the stage, not allowed to speak. So you could see this coming in the 80s and I, and I think before that, if you read, for instance, Ayn Rand's view of the universities in the 60s and 70s, her view is not that they're not a monoculture. It's they're saturated with one ideological viewpoint, which means a certain viewpoint of social and political issues. I think it's gotten worse. And particularly it's more hooligan now, even more. There were elements of it all the way back to the 60s. But to say we're in a more tribal age is to say that people's opposition is less in terms of giving arguments and saying, no, we can't hear this view for reasons A, B, C, and D. It's just, we can't hear this view, period. Um, and that is that is like you're lower intellectually, and as a result, 
you're it's just more hooligan and it has that atmosphere and we see it seep we've seen it seep out of the universities now and that also that that it's more widespread now people think mm -hmm. of it as i think rightly as it's all over the place yeah that sounds right to me so bogosian in his um in his resignation letter and we also as part of preparation for this podcast uh listened to a podcast he did with Barry Weiss about the resignation letter, which is um, interesting and worth listening to. Uh, he points the finger at what he calls grievance studies as the cause of this um, accelerating hooliganism, uh, if you want to put it that way. Um, we should, I think we should say a few things about what exactly grievance studies is supposed to be. I know it's Nikos, you seem to uh, in prior conversation have a discomfort with the use of the term grievance, grievance studies. Um, so how do you understand these ideas? Um, do you think of them in terms of grievances? Do you think of them some other way? So the problem with the term grievance studies is that it's, it indicates that the problem is that they bring up grievances, whereas my issue with them is what is the method through which you find these grievances? So let me explain what I mean. So if you take, for example, critical theory, which is a term that is, is used a lot about this, this field. So the point of critical theory is to teach you, and in a way it's a practice, it's, it's, it's a method through which it's, it's a training on how to spot injustices that someone else would not be able to spot. It's a bit similar to what people on the right call the red pill. So critical theory, you put on these glasses and you see these injustices where other people can't see them. And the only people who could see them are people who, ex who have the quote lived experience of this injustice. So if you think about it, it basically tells you that your mind and what you see is not the world as it is. It is the world as you're trained to see it. But they don't tell you that, that uh, what you see is, let's say, wrong and there is something else, another way of viewing it, which is right. It is telling you that based on which group you are part of, this is how you see the world. So, for example, if we see KKK burning crosses, Every rational person would say, okay, this is clearly racism. But critical theory is going to tell you that even an interaction where you wouldn't, exp you wouldn't even uh, experience it as unpleasant, for example, someone saying something or you replying in a particular way, and 10 rational people would say, yeah, okay, nothing happened here. Critical theories tell you, no, something happened, but either you're not trained to see it or you don't have the training to see. So the problem I have with grievance studies, so of this digging deep, let's say, to find things that are, to use their term, problematic, is that, let's say, their epistemic background, in my view, it's quite, uh, to use their term, problematic itself, because it tells you that the way we view the world has to do not with how we use our mind, but it has to do with our, quote, lived experience. And this is different from saying that, you know what, because let's say you live in a poor neighborhood, you might have more facts. No, it tells you that even if you have all the facts, even if you have read all the books, the way you understand it is still going to be different. So it seems like they're on a, uh, these scholars are 
manufacturing grievances sometimes, um, or they're on a grievance hunt. Like they already know they're there, they're out looking for them. Um, Ankar, when we talked yesterday, you mentioned this in connection with their um, their kind of larger view of, of the capitalist system. They know it's problematic, so there's problems, and that means we just have to find them. Um, could you recapture that? Uh, so I, in your question, you put it either manufacturing grievances or hunting for grievances. And I think the first is the essential, that it's manufacturing for grievances. Grievances. There's some hunting for it, but that's not the essential. And we, I'll uh, explain why I think that. Um, so, and it, it's, you could put it as it's, there's a long standing intellectual animus against capitalism. But part of what I think happens with the new left, it becomes much more open that it's not just against capitalism, it's against the enlightenment and against Western civilization really in the end. So that you're manufacturing grievances, what you're manufacturing is real or uh, sorry, alleged or sometimes real. And part of the way it works is there's some real injustices that they're bringing up. It's not as though the history of the West from the enlightenment on is just one giant positive, though it's an essentially a positive. It's a positive in that we've made massive progress that we live in, an, in today in a state of the world that is, um, there's never been so many people living so well for so long. Um, so the amount of people on the earth, their standard of living and their life expectancy is at the highest it's ever been. And that's an achievement of the enlightenment and of the United States of America as the country of the enlightenment. So it's essentially positive, but there have been, some real, real injustices, like slavery, for instance, in the US. And if people whitewash those, you open the door to people who want to bash America and the Enlightenment and Western civilization. But if your motivation really is to bash these things, then you're not just going to use real injustices, because the arc is we're getting better in a definite way. So it's going to be you're going to manufacture things that are going to say, like, look at this, look at that. And they're not true. And that's certainly for the history of capitalism, if you know the debates about it, all kinds of things about it creates monopolies and so on, are just not true. Um, and the that's part of what is going on here. And I think that's part, particularly what Bogosian is responding to, that they don't seem to actually care if what they're saying is true, as long as it's a grievance that you could, and this is what I'm at it, that you can use to bash capitalism, enlightenment, and Western civilization on the head with, then it's okay. Yeah, so let's talk about this attitude towards truth a little bit. Um, the, uh, the campus procedures that um, Bogosian was subjected to, one of the things he remarks about them is that they seem to have they, they're kangaroo courts. They know the conclusion before the investigation. Um, and there's, a, a, Nikos, we were talking earlier, you kind of had a, had a thought about the relationship between their espoused ideas on truth and then 
how they practice their research and then how the ones of them who go into the administration practice um, investigating troublesome faculty. So what so this what you called kanga uh, what we called kangaroo court procedures. So for people who don't know, for example, if a student makes a complaint, as it happened with Bogosian, what happens is not like a court where they tell you, look, that person made this accusation and you face each other, you give your arguments, they give their arguments, and there's, let's say, an arbitration process, who is right, who is wrong. No, it's a very difficult, a very different procedure. And this procedure is a cautionary tale, in my view, what is going to happen if these views then spill out to society. So what the critical legal studies which have influenced these procedures. What they claim is that what you people call, quote, objectivity is actually a system of power. This idea that we hear what you say and we hear what you say, this is a, this is a structure of oppression that historically it has been used to subjugate, let's say, uh, victimized groups. Therefore, what we need to do is we need to give more voice to the victim. But notice, not give more voice to the victim so that we find the truth, but we give, we, 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 in a way, we affirm the feelings or we affirm the position of the victim as victim, particularly if it is as one of these, quote, protected groups. Therefore, if this process spills out to real life, we will see things such as the further deterioration of the idea of an objective law. And we see this already in the UK, where if you see the language behind, for example, some hate speech laws, it's not that what you said was, for example, objectively racist. It is that it was perceived by the victim as racist. So it's this idea that we put the victim in the center, but again, not as a tool to better find the truth. Because it would make sense, for example, to say, okay, look, we, we don't need to brush off uh, to, to, to dismiss so easily, let's say, sexual uh, abuse allegations. We need to develop them further. But the difference is that do we, do we examine them further so as to reach the truth? Or are we in a, in, a, in a mindset, in a philosophy, where the mere idea of truth as one and objective and universal is dismissed? And therefore, the process we are examining is, okay, who is, who is above whom in this, let's say, in this structure of hierarchies, and therefore, who has priority in terms of whose truth should rise above and whose truth should, uh, should, uh, should be, let's say, sanctioned with justice. That's, how, that's why I think it's very interesting to, to follow uh, how this process of let's say, delivering justice in universities work. It's very, very worrying, and it's something that should be criticized because it has to be at least contained in universities and not, uh, not be expanded to the rest of society. So you, you mentioned the hate crime laws in the UK. In the US, we have, in, uh, on college campuses, we have Title IX investigations, which um, seem to follow similar patterns in that they, there's a deterioration of um, um, uh, due process. Um, the fact-finding part of the Title IX investigation seems um, ungenuine. It was a Title IX investigation that um, Bogosian faced over uh, his 
the allegations that he harmed his family. Um, that seems to be something that's changed in the last uh, decade that might be part of the explanation of what's changed on college campuses. Ankar, do you have any sense of um, where Title IX fits into this, into this shift? Uh, to into this, uh, let's say, ramping up of some of the the trends we we've known about. Yeah, I think I think it's more a symptom than a cause. But in all these kinds of issues, um, things are often both. So it and this is part of what Nikos was talking about that this this is the way they think about so-called justice. That it's not really a quest for the truth. Objectivity is impossible. We're going to elevate a victim just because they say they're a victim, not the, the issue of are they actually a victim and so is not front and center. So that way of thinking will then color their approach to all kinds of things, including like when we've got uh, controversies on campus and alleged injustice and so on, how do we deal with them? This is the process we deal. And if you get a law like Title IX, this it's in part coming from this kind of view, but now gives them, in effect, a weapon to use against people, and it accelerates the process. So it's both, it's coming from somewhere, but it has a causal significance. It's not just a symptom. It also has causal significance. So I think, yeah, with Title IX, the atmosphere on college campus is worse, and in part because of, of uh, Title IX, and in part because the ideas that were already on campus led to things like Title IX. And it tells you part of the motivation involved. So I, I mean, we're talking about Bogosian's, uh, in part his resignation letter. We don't know what happened on Portland State University. I don't know what, I certainly can believe he was under a Title IX investigation. I think there's enough uh, information out that that's true. What ex exactly happened in this investigation, I don't know. But when you both look at the law, and then look at stories and what has been reported across universities in the US, it is used in a deliberately non-objective way. And part of what that tells you is the concern for victims is not a real concern. That it's, to be concerned in a genuine sense with victims is to be concerned with anyone and everyone who's subject to injustice. And in this kind of proceedings, if you have already decided that the person bringing a complaint is the victim and that what happened didn't happen, you're creating victims. You're creating the professor who has to go through this and can't really defend himself. And then there's kind of a black mark, even if, it, if nothing happens, there's kind of a, this question like, he was subject to a Title IX investigation. Like, what did he do? And even if they couldn't prove it, and so, and you have this black mark on you, and often it's far worse than that. That there's real repercussions to these, and you've created a victim. So the idea that you're not um, that this that we um, that the, these kinds of processes to say they're non-objective, they're obviously non-objective. And that tells you that the concern that what's driving it is they care about victims. That's not what they care about. Okay, so I wanna shift sl slightly to talk about um, some of the 
so the let's say the deeper causes of the current um, of the current uh, climate. So we've mentioned um, grievance studies, and Nikos was talking about critical theory and the impact that's had on how administrators are running campuses. Um, but the question then is, well, how did this ideology take over? How did these people get into positions of power within um, campuses? And as Bogosian explains it, his, his explanation is a little um, conspiratorial, I think. So he talks about what he calls idea laundering, um, if you have a certain, uh, you know, you want to study um, um, a certain perspective on colonialism, what you do is you start a journal and then you and your friends who think the same way publish in it. And if you publish it in it enough, you have enough publications for tenure and now you're a tenured faculty and this multiplies and eventually they take over the university system. But that seems to me to um, not make enough of the um, the ideological preconditions that allows one group to succeed at this versus another. So, Ankar, when we talked earlier, you mentioned that if you don't really understand the full cause, there's a kind of this this situation might look a little uh, scary conspiracist. Um, what do, and this is for Nikos or Ankar, what do you think is the deeper cause of this um, takeover? Is it just, uh, you know, they were clever in their um, bureaucratic maneuvering or uh, was there some kind of inevitability to this? Um... So definitely it's not that it was a conspiracy because if it was a conspiracy, it would leave some traces and we don't have these, uh, these traces. Also, many people have tried to take over universities. If you think, I mean, openly, the Mon Pelerin Society and Hayek, his big idea is we're going, to, we're going to win the battle through the universities. And this failed so miserably that today we know by name the four or five universities in the West that teach uh, free market ideas. So it's not that, it is that what we'd call this family, let's say, of critical theory, all that stuff, they cast in two tendencies that were already very prevalent in the West. The one is epistemological, the idea of particularism. And you could say, but wait a minute, wasn't Marxism that was the dominant paradigm? And Marxism talked about universalism. But Marx also talked about that the way you view the world as a worker is not the same as the way you view the world as a boss. And he talked about class consciousness and bourgeois consciousness and working class consciousness. By the way, he didn't say that the one is right and the other is wrong. He just said that you view the world in two different ways. So based on this, then the new left starts elaborating on this. It says, wait a minute. But also this means that, for example, there's a black consciousness and a female consciousness, or let's say, a, a post-colonial consciousness. Therefore, the, the, the ground was already fertile for this. But the, the most important thing, the most important uh, basis for this was egalitarianism. Because what is, the, what is the point of this movement? The point is we find these injustices and we tear down privilege, we tear down hegemonies. So 
everyone was in favor of, yes, oh, I understand that there are different systems of knowledge and everyone was in favor. Sure, this is an unjust world. Therefore, we have to reach some level of justice. I mean, you cannot argue against that. So this is a very, very simplistic way to put it. But I think this is why they achieved. And this is why, for example, a quote conspiracy to take over the universities and suddenly teach that, no, you know what? You're a free person, you're an individual, you should be free to try and fail. And if you do better than someone else, that's good for you. That would be so against the dominant moral paradigm out there, which wouldn't have any chance of serious success. So that's a very, very simplistic answer. But if I, could, if I had to explain it in three minutes, I think this is why they became so successful because there was already a fertile ground in terms of the dominant ideas that they were tweaked a bit and that's how we ended up where we are today. Ankar, do you want to add anything? Yeah, so the uh, I agree that it's not a conspiracy um, because it was more, well, for partly because it was more out in the open and what makes it seem when you if you listen to Bogosian and Weiss's podcast, what makes it seem like the explanation is these people got together and in the back rooms they concocted this thing and they kind of um, nobody noticed them taking over the administrations and creating these departments. So, but creating these departments, creating these journals, like it's out in the open, anybody could see it, and that there, more of them are getting on the administration, people can see. So in that sense, it can't be a conspiracy like that. But it seems like it because they're not talking sufficiently of what Nikos was just talking about, about the ideological conditions that made it possible for these people to succeed and to have very, so part of the success is that they have very little opposition. I don't think yet the people who sort of kind of card carriers of this ideological perspective and whether you call it wokeism or give it a different name, I don't think this is the majority of faculties, uh, I'm sorry, majority of professors in the faculties on universities, but it's a vocal minority that has no opposition. And to understand why it has no opposition, Take two of the things that Nikos brought up, which I I agree, th these are fundamental things. I would put the particularism in a different way, but it's the same issue, that it's, um, that objectivity is impossible. And Marx is a version of that. It's that if, if you belong to a certain class, you see the world and have to see the world in a certain way. So the idea that you could reach the truth, that you could identify independently the nature of reality and what is out there um, and so what is true and what you should do what values you should adopt no that's conditioned by the economic class you're in and so on um, there were other versions of that in the 19th century that's not so much focused on economic class but on some other group that you're the member of that that's what dictates how you look at the world and objectivity as at a philosophical level came to an end with Kant, with Immanuel Kant in the late 18th, 19th century. The essence of what he does is says, uh, objectivity is impossible. And if you look at, and I think this is the right way to look at the enlightenment, that its essence is objectivity is possible. And 
if we're objective in every area of life, in science, in math, in politics, in morality, in education, we can achieve real values. We can get to the truth and achieve what's good. That's what it, it doesn't, it's not consistent in regard to that, but that's the essence of the enlightenment as a new movement. And Kant said, that's impossible. And the 19th century then is, okay, if that's impossible, how do we think about the world? And then you get Marx saying, well, we have to think of it as uh, economic classes that dictates things, but there's all kinds of variants of that. And you, the variant today um, is that it's through race, gender, sexuality, that's what dictates a person's um, views and identity. So it's collectivism in that kind of an epistemological collectivism and then the egalitarianism. Um, and so one of the, from a philosophical point of view for the podcast, one of the things between Bogosian and Weiss, one of the things that is frightening about it, um, it just in thinking about the opposition like I think they're both genuinely trying to oppose wokeism and so on. But near the start of the podcast, it's um, Bogosian praises John Rawls' a theory of justice and said that had a transformative effect on him. And Rawls, if you had to pick one figure for the rise of egalitarianism from the 70s to today, it's John Rawls. And Bogosian can't see that Rawls ideas lead to this. And th that, that's part of the problem that you've got these crusaders and even opponents like Bogosian can't see the ideas on which they're relying, that they're egalitarians. And if you're opposed to them, you have to question egalitarians. So what I'm getting from you both is the importance of um, learning these ideas and their um, predecessors. So in uh, the spring, I believe both of you are co-teaching a course for the OAC on some of these ideas. Do you want to take a minute to tell us about that? Um, what kind of text you'll be reading? Um, what you see the purpose of the course uh, as? Yeah, so this is a course. So the, pr the problem is that there are two categories mostly out there. The category that takes these ideas at face value as a dogma almost, but also the people who oppose them without really understanding them or understanding them on a very superficial level. So you see her often saying, oh, these people are ideologues as if this is the problem with them. So this module uh, tries to understand what we call critical theory from its beginning. So the first thing is what do these people say? So we go back to Marx, and then to the new left, then to post-structuralism, uh, terms that we use so often, post-structuralism, post-modernism, and yet they're not exactly the same. We're gonna talk about Foucault. For many people, Foucault is the, is, is the biggest villain in this story, and we, we're gonna see if this is the case. Then we're going to move to feminist studies, queer studies, post-colonialism. So we try to, first of all, understand what are these people actually saying? We don't want to, strawman them. So we want to see, okay, let's go back to the sources. What are they saying? And the second thing we're trying to do is, what is our criticism to them? And this is the most important and difficult thing. We sense that something is wrong with them. We sense that they are wrong, but how exactly do we refute them? Where exactly, how do we put our fingers saying, this is where you're wrong? 
and this is where you went uh, when you this this is this is the right way to approach it and this is why you're this is why you're missing it so onkar do you want to say something else about the the module yes so we will also read some things where it's kind of contemporary application of this and part of looking at the history is just what we were talking about it's that you need it to really see the history is to see the causality involved and when you're talking about ideas it's not deterministic it's not okay there was this idea and then there has to be this idea. but there is logical connections between them and even if you're talking about ideas that are wrong or even if you think like they're not just wrong they're irrational there's still a logic there to the ideas that and again if nobody opposes them how they develop and what they lead to and so to take as an example i mean we haven't decided exactly the whole reading list and what we're but i think if you read kendi um how to be an anti-racist you can't understand it and why it's plausible to people today if you don't see rawls in the background um, and this is the kind of thing that it's, that's exactly what Boghossian doesn't, he thinks Boghossian does not see. He seems to think that Rawls is an opponent of Kendi. And I think that's completely wrong. But part of what seeing that, the, that connection, it makes the whole phenomenon more intelligible. So to go back to the conspiracy kind of issue, the more it seems like, uh, and you, if you listen again to that podcast, you get a bit of this, these, these people are crazy. And at one level, I can understand describing some of these people as crazy, but that's insufficient. It's you have to get, no, there's a certain logic here. And to oppose them, success, that is to successfully oppose bad ideas, you have to expose them. You have to really understand them and what they're relying on. And you have to oppose everything about that, what they're relying on. And that is the objectivism because it's a radical new philosophy gives you a perspective on the way um other ideas are working that i mean it's just completely absent i think from for instance from Bogosian. and let us also highlight that this class this module is open to auditors so and i would encourage people to even if you're not let's say a student in oec you can audit this uh, this class and this class the way the way we envision it it gives you a map to navigate what is happening out there with a the so-called culture war so you take this class and suddenly you understand and you can connect the dots and you can see how wh where do these things come from and also where are they going and how they're related to each other but also how they're different to each other so for example i don't like when people say oh sjw's are communists no, if, if you go back, you see there are big, big differences. There are significant similarities on some fundamentals, but also there are differences. So anyway, I'm excited about this, uh, this module. And I think, uh, again, if you're interested in what's happening out there and you, you follow the, the so-called culture wars, consider auditing uh, this, uh, this course. Great, thank you. Um... Okay, so for the last major topic, I want to talk about um, what we can do or what Bogosian thinks he can do to counter these people, to oppose these people. So he, in, in the, both in the letter and in the podcast he does with Barry Weiss, um, 
he doesn't exactly say it this way, but I think one of the things you can take from what he's saying is that um, in a sense, the, the wokeism crowd has won. They've taken over academia and he doesn't seem to see, he doesn't see any future for people fighting within the system. Um, he comes and he advocates um, alternative institutions. Uh, so I think we, we should talk a little bit about what an alternative institution might look like, um, what Bogosian as an opponent, um, what we think of what we think of that. Um, so uh, let's see. So <clears throat> Ankar, when we talked yesterday, you mentioned the um, idea of an, you you wanted to connect the possibility of alternative institutions uh, to academia, to the um, kind of spirit of Silicon Valley where they um, don't try to reform some uh, something from within, but they have a kind of external um, alternative to it. And I think if I remember your example was Uber did not try to change the taxi industry. Instead, it did an end run around, around the regulations. So do you want to um, say anything uh, about that, about the possibility of alternative institutions, what they might look like? So certainly in the US, there's a growing um, kind of a growing, I didn't, it's too strong to call it, I was going to say a growing movement, but sort of growing conversations about the need for alternative institutions. And I think from in education broadly, so from K-12 education to colleges and universities, that there's more recognition that they're failing in certain ways, or even if you don't put it as they're failing, they're not that good and they could be way better. Um, and part of the why I think the comparison to Uber is interesting in terms of thinking about this is that, so the taxi cab industry is similar in a certain sense to the colleges and universities and also K through 12, in that there's massive government involvement in these from K through 12, that's certainly through public schools, but part of what's changed for universities is the role that government and government money plays in universities today is, if you go now like back decades, is significantly greater. And that is corrupting. Um, and it just as it corrupted the taxi cab industry, and if you have to have, you just pay the government for a license and so on, and then you won't have competitors, there's a fixed number of licensees and so on. It did, did anybody think taxi cabs were great when they when we just had taxi? No, they're expensive, their drivers are unfriendly, often rude to you, and so on. And so when Uber did an end run around them, there were questions about, like, is this even legal to do? Um, the government says only these people can be cabs, can these other people? And, and people who are now going to try to take on K through 12 and college and university are gonna face that kind of issue um, of like, is this, are we even gonna allow this from the government's perspective? But the, what Uber did was in effect, come into certain places, offer a service, the government and legal systems are fairly slow. And they, what they were hoping, and they succeeded in this was by the time 
there's start to have real challenges. It was enough people are using Uber. This is way better than taxi cabs. We want this. We don't, we don't want to go back to taxi cabs. So, and that is what I think would, what it will look like in regard to education, that there will be a lot of gray areas. Um, is this legitimate and so on? Um, but the if you get real innovation, which you will, if you get Silicon Valley people and, and that kind of mentality involved, it will be so much better that people say, no, we're not going back, even if in some sense they violated the law and so on. Um, and in some ways, it's an even more important disruption than Uber because, for example, oh, I yes. remember around 2014, many libertarians were so hyped with the sharing economy or with 3D printing. They were saying it's a matter of time to live in a freer world. But if you don't change the ideas, the technology by itself is not going to liberate you. So for and we even saw the opposite that some of these, let's say, Silicon Valley, very creative and new businesses, their ideas adapt to the mess, to the ideological mess out there. So disrupting education is the number one need, is, is the number one area that needs to be disrupted, and then disrupting anything else is going to be easier. Let me say something in follow up to that. So here the disruption is kind of new institutions, new ways of thinking, new forms of organization that requires at least de facto freedom. So Uber didn't have freedom in law. Like I think if you in many of the cities where they went into, if you look at the law, it's they shouldn't have been there. Um, but they had de facto freedom in the sense that the law didn't descend upon them. Um, and you'll need that in regard to having real innovation in education, but you will also need, if we're talking here that you're gonna challenge the ideas that are increasingly entrenched in universities. And again, that doesn't mean that everyone agrees with them, but they're the vocal minority that nobody dares challenge. And that has seeped into the business world, the nonprofit world. I mean, the, the people I talk to, basically everybody in any sizable industry now has, is dealing with issues of so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion in the US. So it, it really is all over the place. And to challenge that, it's not just enough to have different institutions. If you have different institutions propagating the same ideas, and particularly, like th this is the philosophical perspective, propagating the same philosophical fundamentals that lead to and support this, then the disruption is not going to be like the disruption of Uber, and you got something way better. You, you might have something a bit better, but if you're, it's still teaching, yeah, egalitarianism is right, and John Rawls is right, and so on, um, that will be a disaster. And there's another element of this that we haven't talked about that it's even there's fewer people who challenge like there's very few people who challenge egalitarianism today even fewer people challenge determinism and if you get other uh like other institutions than these kind of I, I think of them now as government education from k through university not just k through 12 it's k through university it's essentially government education or government schools if you get something in the private sector, but it continues to push determinism, people are, including Bogosian, um, and if you listen to the podcast, this comes up with Weiss, like they're both sort of puzzled. Why are students, do they seem so fragile uh, that they can't listen to arguments, that they find an argument threatening and so on? 
there's no way, there, uh, there's no better way to disempower someone and sort of feeling fragile, out of control, helpless is the flip side of being disempowered. I mean, that's a way of describing it. If you've lost power, that's how you come to feel, that you're helpless. Then telling people you don't have choice, you don't have control of your mind, you're not able to think, you can't determine your own values, you're a product. And it doesn't matter if the product, you're a product of your economic class, you're a product of your biology, you're a product of your ancestry, you're a product of your genes, you're a product of the, what gender you are, what uh, um, sex you are. It doesn't matter if you've told people that you don't have choices and you don't have a uh, this kind of volitional control over your own life. That is the most disempowering thing you can do to someone. And that's everywhere. It, not just in these um, uh, race, gender, sexuality journals, it's all over the humanities and all over the sciences. And if you're gonna keep that as what we're teaching kids, that they feel that they don't have power, you can't be surprised by it. That's, it's, it's the, if you and really project what it means to take determinism seriously, it means you're helpless. So and it's also the gateway to tribalism. Because if you tell people you can't make sense of the world and you don't have the capacity to use the tool that would help you to navigate the world, then how do I navigate? I need to link to other people. I need to link up to other people it's like we're all blind, but if we if we share if we hold hands, we might be able to navigate our blindness. And this is behind uh, this is why tribalism is also so popular today. So we're running a little low on time. I want to make sure we cover one briefly one last uh, bit, which is that uh, as far as alternative institutions go, um, this summer. Uh, our ARI CEO, Tal Tisfani, announced that the OAC is turning into the Ayn Rand uh, University, uh, an alternative, for now, philosophy program. Um, it's, and this is the subject of next week's podcast, so um, stay tuned for more. But Ankar, if you wanted to say maybe a minute or two about how you see ARU uh, fitting into this potential for alternative, um, alternatives to academia. Yes, and there's a similarity to, I think, Bogosian's perspective, though not, it's not the same, but it's, we at ARI thought, so ARI was founded in the 80s, so this is like over a certain span of time, that what we need to do is get people into universities and that you can have change and reform and better ideas winning out, with, but within these institutions. And I think most of us at ARI now are more skeptical that that is either, if not if possible, the best strategy. Um, I think some of us are uh, skeptical that it's even possible, but even if it is in some sense possible, is it the best strategy? And given the, the world that Silicon Valley has opened up, that all these new possibilities, the, the thinking is, no, now it's, it's let's create more of our own programming, our more our own institution where we do some of the training that would have happened in universities, and so if the universities were good. So, to, to so this is the issue of an alternative institution, 
instead of trying to reform from within existing uh, universities and existing education. So that's the direct, the, the vision and that uh, you said Tal, our CEO was articulating in, the, in this talk in Ocon a few weeks ago is just, that's the direction. But what's crucial from our perspective is it's not just a different institution or institutional framework. It has radically different ideas that will be the foundation for what we're teaching and what we're doing. And not just in the sense, and this is what's di very different than Bogosian. He seems to have a, this kind of attitude that we need to get back to liberal, um, the liberal university, the, when the humanities were liberal. And our perspective on that, and particularly if you don't mean classical liberal, which I don't think is exactly what is meant when he uses liberal, um, is no, all kinds of the, those ideas are really, really wrong and lead to where we are now. So, and Rawls is again, an example of that. Like he'll be putting the liberal tradition and our perspective on his whole viewpoint and the egalitarians more generally are as their enemies. And not just like they're wrong, they're enemies of freedom, of reason, of the enlightenment, of objectivity. So part of what will be different about our institution is not just, well, it's an alternative institution. It has radically alternative ideas. Okay, uh, great. Let's take a few of the uh, super chat questions before we log off. Um, Mary Eileen asked a number of questions. I think we answered um, her question about any hope in academia. Um, she asks, what's the name of your course, uh, Nico Sanankar? Do you have a name for the course yet? Okay, that's that's going to be counterclimactic. We haven't got the name. <laughs> but it's no probably going to be something related to... So if you see it in the curriculum, you'll, you'll recognize it. It's going to be something related to critical theory because it's probably the, the, the theme that puts these fields together. But I don't know, Onkar, have you got any thoughts on the name? Yeah, I mean, it has a working title, kind of investigating critical theory or something like that. I think there's something up on the OAC site about it, but we might come up with a catchier name closer to <laughs> catchier title. Um, well, but you know it when you see it. Uh, from Zoom, we have the question, is it uh, possible to sign up just as an auditor for just your course? And I think the answer to that is or will be uh, yes. Um, yes. Let's see. Um, I think there's discounts if people sign up for more, but it it's certainly will be possible to just do that. Possible to do just one. Yeah. Um, have either of you read Cynical Theories by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckros? This is a question also from Mary Eileen. And do you have uh, any thoughts? Uh, Pluckros and Lindsay were the collaborators with Bogosian on the hoax papers. So I use cynical theories not to reconstruct, sorry, not to deconstruct these theories, but also to teach them. So they did a very good work in finding the the, the essence. So so and putting these ideas out in a simple way. Now I might disagree on their their, their solutions that they that they offer, but it's a very good book uh, as a beginning to try to understand these ideas. So trying to say in simple words what Derrida is about is very difficult and I think they're doing a good uh, a good work in it. 
Okay. How much of the current trends in universities is derived from the philosophy of postmodernism? I mentioned that briefly, but. In its essence, a lot. Uh, as, a, as a school of thought, not so much. So if you go in a, in a demanding department, say how many of you are postmodernists, you're not gonna see many hands raised. But in terms of its influence, I would say it has been an influence, but it's not the dominant thing anymore. Uh, critical race theory or intersectionality, I would say, are way more, more dominant. Although you could say they have common roots with postmodernism, but postmodernism was also, let's say, a paradigm which is not so, it's not the most fashionable thing anymore. Although we used to, we use these terms often interchangeably. More on that okay. on the course. What's the difference between postmodernism <laughs> and critical race theory? Uh, I think we have. I'll just say one other thing in terms of thinking about this kind of thing. One of the things Ayn Rand slash objectivism teaches you to, in regard to thinking about these kinds of issues, is to not div divorce the psychology from the looking at these kinds of issues. So if you ask, is it the same mentality um, as like that there were people who were part of the old left and now part of the new left who used to view themselves as postmodern and now have lashed on to something else? And so I think the answer often is yes, it's the same mentality. But that doesn't mean it's just you can say like the content of what they're saying now is just a glossed over version of Marxism or something like that. And that it, you have to distinguish those two but see the relationship of those two. And that's part of how to look at these movements. Okay, I think we have time for just one more quick one uh, before we have to sign off. Um, this question's about, well, it mentions Boghossian's book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. I haven't read that of either of you. No, so let's, um, but he brings up the book because he wants to know about, um, Bogosian's uh, skepticism. So he says he drove people skeptical from uh, their religion, but provided no thorough epistemology, I guess no alternative. Um, is that a, a, a failing on his part? Um, to what, it, let's say, in, in what ways is Bogosian's uh, skepticism of uh, certainty um, undermining his cause? Onkar. Yeah, so I'm not an expert on Bogosian, but uh, the the wider phenomenon is what I think is actually interesting, um, or is more interesting. If, if I had to pick, do you want to know exactly what Bogosian's view is, or how this is working culturally? And so, and he this comes up in the podcast that he viewed himself as he really got into being vocal about an atheist so with the rise of the new atheist in the or like the cultural um, cachet that the new atheist had, uh, whatever, in 2003 going forward for a number of years. Um, and people like Dawkins and so on have spoken out about his mistreatment by university and so on. The, when, it's, when it's said that they don't offer anything positive epistemologically, I don't think that's right, that is too, too strong, they're the, at least the best of them, or pro-science. So someone like Dawkins is pro-science, Sam Harris is pro-science, 
Dennett is pro-science. Um, and I think Bogosian would think of himself as he's, he's pro-reason, he's pro-enlightenment, he's pro-science. And there's all kinds of things, those science and the enlightenment and the scientific method have taught us about proper epistemology, the search for the truth, but it's not sufficient. It's not a complete case. And particularly when you get to the philosophical level of how does all this work? Um, and why do we even think we're aware of the world external to us? And can you really defend that? Or is that just an article of faith for you? And so when you get to the philosophical um, questions about this, I think they're not, many of them they're not able to answer. I think Bogosian would be aware of what they are. Some of the, these people, I think they're not even quite aware of what the controversies are and what happened philosophically, what Kant did in the way in which he, he saves science by relegating it to, it doesn't tell you anything about reality. And so they're not, they're not just that sophisticated. Bogosian's in philosophy as, as is Dennett, so they should know some of this. Um, versus a Richard Dawkins, who's a biologist. But so there are epistemological problems, but it's too strong to say they don't have anything positive to say. But what they're also, like if I was thinking about this in, in terms of what the questioner is bringing up, what they're unable to do is how to, to give a convincing perspective on how to think about values. And some of them are trying to do this how to think about values, morality from a more scientific perspective. But there's major things wrong in the way they think about that. And this is in part, why did the enlightenment intellectually come to an end? It's because you, nobody could offer an integrated perspective of how to think about facts and values, about what's true and what's good. And part of the way what, the way, what Kant did works is I'll give you truth if you give me values. Um, and it's, yeah, your science gets to truth. That's about a phenomenal world. The world of appearance is not true reality. True reality is about our, our commitments and values. And so, and that is, you get to that by a very different way. Um, it's total mysticism in Kant, but that, and that there's that split has never been healed. And these people are unable to do it even when they try to do it. And this is one of Ayn Rand's major achievements philosophically is how to think about fact and values and to integrate them, not to split them into two separate realms. It's one of her major philosophical achievements. Okay, thank you to everyone who sent us a question and for your uh, super chat donations. If you have follow-up questions or uh, think you're, we missed um, the essence of your question, you can join us on Clubhouse afterwards. Thank you, Nikos and Ankar for uh, being here with me today. Um, we'll, like I was saying, we'll continue the conversation in just a few minutes on uh, the Clubhouse app. We are the Ayn Rand Club. You can just search for us in the app um, if you're new to it next week on New Ideal Live. We'll be talking about the expansion of the Ayn Rand University. Um, I know Ankar will be involved in that uh, discussion. So I think some of the things we talked about at the end of today's podcast will come back up. On October 13th, there will be a 
another uh, general Q&A on objectivism that will be run by Ben Bayer and one of our junior fellows, uh, Dr. Tristan Delige, who will be appearing on New Ideal for the first time. Uh, if you have questions about objectivism that you'd like uh, Ben and Tristan to answer, you can email newideal at einrand.org. Send us your questions. Um, we'll try to get to as many as we can. You can follow New Ideal live on YouTube by clicking subscribe and hitting the bell notification. Please uh, like our video if you like it. It helps us get more views and it helps with the algorithm. And you can also follow us on uh, Facebook. And again, please uh, like as it helps with, uh, with the algorithms. Uh, thanks again, Ankar. Thanks again, Nikos. Um, that's it for today. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.